Gospel of John focuses on the deity of Christ. No other book in all of Scripture emphasizes the deity of Christ more than the Gospel of John. And the theme of this passage is the Savior of the world, which I thought would serve us well as an anchor for our Christmas season that is coming. Christmas typically provides us with great opportunities to serve as witnesses to unbelieving family and friends and co-workers. And I've discovered that there's a direct correlation between our uh, preparation to be effective in reaching out with our spiritual preparation within. That we would take time to be prepared to reach out. That we would be meditating on the gospel. That we would be evangelists that God is calling us to be. In John 4, we're parachuting right into the middle of a gospel narrative. So it may require us to look backwards at, at times so that we can gain a complete perspective. And I want us to take a closer look at three parties of, the, of people that the Lord Jesus Christ engages in this passage. And more specifically, I want us to see how intentional he is with his instruction. Your bulletin has the sermon proposition, three interactions from the instructing Savior so that you can be prepared to have a white Christmas, to celebrate a white Christmas. And so we're going to study interaction number one, the wayward woman. Interaction number two, the distracted disciples. And interaction number three, the skeptical Samaritans. Well, let's begin with interaction number one, the wayward woman. The entire chapter of John 4 deals with a woman, a wayward woman, if you will. And the Lord Jesus Christ has this divine encounter with this woman at the well on his journey with the disciples who are walking from Judea in the south, northbound to Galilee. And time won't permit us to read an entire account, but a glimpse will be helpful. Jesus on his journey stops to rest with his disciples who are off retrieving food. And the Lord asks this woman at the well for a drink of water. In John 4, verses 7 and 8, it says, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And here's a synopsis of the situation. It was high noon, and it would have been very warm. And Jesus and the disciples are traveling a, a very good distance. And so verse 6 even says that Jesus was weary from the journey. And he stops for this divine appointment at Jacob's well, which is still in existence to this day. It's over 100 feet deep, and it's, it's fed by a natural spring. And it lurks in the shadows of, of uh, an Orthodox church. But water wasn't the real issue for the Lord. Her soul is what he was pursuing. Excuse me, what he was pursuing. She responds by questioning Jesus for even talking to her. Verse 9 says, Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And there are a number of reasons why it would have been considered a violation of cultural Jewish customs for Jesus to talk to this woman. But I want to share, to you, share with you the, the three major ones. 
First, Jesus was a Jew and she was a Samaritan. Second, Jesus and the woman were all alone. And third, she was a woman. The Jews and Samaritans had no dealings with each other. This is reason number one. In fact, the Samaritans hated the Jews because Samaritans were considered a mixed race. They were part Jewish and part Gentile. And the Jews despised the Samaritans for intermingling. And some of the disdain was warranted, and we see this throughout the Old Testament where Israelites would take foreign wives. And they would marry them and then allow their culture to impact them without having them become proselyte Jews, converted Jews. Orthodox Jews also worshipped at the Jerusalem temple while the Samaritans worshipped at Mount Gerizim. And there are many other inherited suspicions and animosities between these two parties. But the short version is this. They despised each other. And the second reason this encounter went against Jewish cultural customs was that Jesus and the woman were all alone. And I want to read this quote to you from uh, the, the Mishnah, the Jewish uh, collection, religious collection of writings that had this to say, quote, A man shall not be alone with a woman in an inn, not even with his sister or his daughter, on account of what men may think. A man shall not talk with a woman in the street, not even his own wife and especially not with another woman, on account of what men may say. End quote. This was a very suppressive culture during the time of Christ. And this wasn't the rabbis or the Jewish religious leaders um, trying to have married men walk in accordance with wisdom by not talking to ladies that weren't their wives. I think we could all appreciate the, the sentiment of that wisdom. This was sexism and suppression. Our third reason will expand even more about this. The third reason it would have been considered taboo for Jesus to speak to this woman was because the rabbis regarded women as inferior to men in every way. An ancient Jewish prayer disappointingly says this, Blessed art thou, O Lord, who has not made me a woman. Wow. So, to be a Samaritan meant to be looked down upon, but to be a Samaritan woman was especially looked down upon. And as one commentator expressed so fittingly, he had this to say, Jesus himself was not hostage to the sexism of his day. This does explain, however, why the woman was so surprised that Jesus spoke to her and why when the disciples came back from retrieving food, they were like, whoa, what's going on here? They, they saw him having this conversation with her and it says that they marveled that he was talking to a woman. Other translations say that they were astonished or incredulously surprised. Yet God would have us see something very important here in this interaction. The woman was not wayward because she was a Samaritan. The woman was not wayward because she was having a conversation with Christ alone. Nor was her waywardness due to the fact that she was frowned upon by rabbis for being a woman. Her waywardness is revealed when the Lord prompts her to call for her husband earlier in uh, verses 16 through 18. 
And starting in chapter 4, verse 16, it says, Go call, Jesus says to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have, ha- have said is true. This woman was terribly lost. Married and divorced five times and now living with a man who wasn't her legal husband in a fornicating relationship. Yet the Lord, in a spirit of love and compassion, continues to spiritually pursue her by trying to get her to see who he is. This woman had a rough life relationally. And regardless of the number of husbands that she had, the questions that the Lord were asking her were requiring her to look into the mirror of her life. The Lord is the master of this technique. We also know that her reputation was already so bad that she was coming to get water at high noon in the heat of the day, the hottest portion of the day, where most women would have gathered together and had conversation on their way down. Ladies, right? Conversation on the way down and, and um, um, had an, a, a social outlet and would have met in the coolness of the morning or the coolness of the evening to gather the water. And this woman showed up to get some physical water, but instead she gets hit with a spiritual tidal wave with this encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And only the Lord knows whether her heart was truly converted you know, we can be encouraged by her response after her, re-inter- her interaction with the instructing Savior. Verses 28 through 30 share that she left her water pot immediately, went into the city to share what just happened. And some speculate that she was so overcome with the reality that this was the Savior, and this conversation had such an impact on her life that she left her, her water pot and, and immediately went back to Sakar, the, the village that she was from, to, to share with the Samaritans what just took place. Others say she left the water pot so that the Lord could have a drink of water because the well was very deep. Our passage doesn't provide clear affirmation for us. We do find out later in verse 49 that many of the Samaritans of that city believed in Christ Jesus because of the word of the woman who testified. And that should be an encouragement to us. Our instructing Savior allows us to see that we never really know all that he is doing behind the scenes of stony hearts. He doesn't slumber. He's at work. He's drawing people to himself. And this is a great lesson for us as we prepare to engage unbelievers at Christmas time. A person's reputation or sinful lifestyle shouldn't be an impediment for us to come share the gospel with them. It's not about a person being in a certain place or having a certain worthiness for us to share the gospel with them. How many Jews do you think we're going to go seek out this woman to talk to her about the Savior? Yet, what did Christ do? He specifically sought her out. Everyone needs Christ. And it is not based on status. It is not based on reputation. It is not based on anything except 
that it's the will of God and that Jesus Christ is worthy to be exalted. And one commentator shared this insight about Jesus witnessing to the religious leader Nicodemus in chapter 3 contrasted with his witness to the Samaritan woman in chapter 4. And this is what he said, quote, Nicodemus was well taught, powerful, respected, orthodox, theologically trained. The Samaritan woman was unschooled, without influence, despised, capable of only folk religion. Nicodemus was a man, a Jew, a ruler. She was a woman, a Samaritan, a moral outcast. Yet they both needed Christ. Is there anyone in your life? Is there anyone in your family that that is someone that maybe you've avoided because of the sin that is so prevalent in their life? Is there anyone that you think is just too sinful? They're just too selfish and there's no way that God could reach them. And in your mind, they're just not ready. The time just isn't right. God is at work behind the scenes of stony hearts. And salvation is always on His clock, not on ours. And we can't allow ourselves to be intimidated or to shy away because sin is more evident in a person's life. In fact, I'll go so far as saying this, the greater manifestation of sin that's on display in a person's life, chances are they're more ripe for the gospel. The way of the transgressor is hard. It's a hard life without Christ. And they're reaping everything that they're sowing. And their life is miserable. It's misery. It's misery. In my evangelism experiences, the most difficult people to reach out are those who have the most visible morality in their lives. I mean, after all, the warm blanket of personal pride is the only covering that we need, right? This is exactly how my heart was inclined to respond after my moral upbringing. Was I going to heaven? Of course. I went to church every Sunday and I hadn't killed anybody. I mean, what more did you have to do? Right? I, was, I was a pretty good guy. You know, of course I was going to heaven. And I, I lived singing this, you know, the, the, the morality or the, the goodness jingle. Romans 3.23 don't apply to me. You know? Romans 3.23 didn't apply to me. But yet God pursued me. And yet by His grace, He sent people with the gospel, equipped to the gospel to witness and to evangelize to me. And He was kind to do that. And he allowed me and he gave me eyes to see that. You want to know what? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. That applies to me. It does. Applied to me directly. Another quick insight that the instructing Savior allows us to see in this first interaction is the humility and the gentleness in his evangelism. His gentleness intact. And let me say this, even in a state of weariness, because we all know what happens when we get tired, right? It's hard, right? When, we, when, when fatigue hits. And yet here he was, thirsty, exhausted, and yet he's humble and he's gentle. And we should take notice of this. It would serve us well as we prepare our hearts to engage unbelievers. And 
Here are just a couple passages. We won't have a, uh, time to look at them, but for those taking notes, you can jot them down. Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6, and 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25 are two great passages to focus on and meditate on before witnessing to unbelieving family and friends. Well, we're studying three interactions from the instructing Savior so that we can be prepared to celebrating, uh, be prepared to celebrate a white Christmas. And we've looked at the interaction with the wayward woman, and now let's turn our attention to the interaction with the distracted disciples. Verse 31 says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? The disciples, we know, were already distracted by the fact that he was speaking to a woman when they came back. And now they're distracted because somehow they're wondering why Jesus isn't um, asking about the food that they just spent. Now, I think many of us can relate to this with explanation in the room, especially wives in the room that have made an effort to prepare um, a, a good meal for your family or your husband, right? And they, they come home from work or they get back from, from school or practice and they say, oh, I'm sorry, I, I'm, I'm really not hungry. You know, I think that might generate some questions. That, and this is exactly what's happening with the disciples here. They just made an effort to go walk into the town and travel a great distance. And what time of day is it? It's noon. It's really warm, right? And they, they come back, and Jesus doesn't ask them anything about the food, and so they're inclined to, to ask questions. Did, did somebody give him something to eat? And the irony is that the instructing Savior is trying to teach them a spiritual lesson, much like he just did with the woman at the well. And our instructing Savior always uses physical realities to teach spiritual lessons. He did it in John chapter 2, right? When at the, um, John chapter 2, when he cleansed the temple and um, he, he said, what, if you destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up again, right? And they thought he was talking about the physical temple and he was making a spiritual reference to, to, to himself. And then in John chapter 3, you have Nicodemus who comes to him and he says, listen, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is just like, okay, thinking about physical birth. How is that even possible? Okay. And now we encounter two, um, two interactions here in chapter 4. The first being with the woman who came and, and she wants to talk about physical water. And, she, and, and the Lord Jesus Christ is talking to her about spiritual water. And now here we have the disciples who are focused on physical food. And the Lord Jesus Christ is trying to teach them about spiritual food. And all of these interactions are for our benefit. All of them. So that we don't make the same mistake. And what mistake is that? That somehow our physical realities would eclipse the spiritual lessons and the spiritual reality that God is trying to teach us. The instructing Savior wants us to be prepared to exalt Him by focusing on the gospel opportunities and our continuing spiritual growth, not just during Christmas, but each and every day. And it's here 
at this moment that we encounter the heart of the sermon. Church, listen to the words of the instructing Savior. Is physical food important? You bet. Were the disciples genuinely concerned about Jesus Christ being fed and nourished? I have no doubt that they were. Yet here is what the Lord wanted them to see, and he wants us to see it too. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Our instructing Savior draws a contrast. This spiritual and physical contrast was just seen moments earlier with the living water and the woman at the well. And verse 13 of chapter 4 says, Jesus says to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And so first, it was water with the woman, and now it's food with the fellas, okay? And verse 34 is most um, likely, um, it's the Lord referencing uh, Old Testament instruction in Deuteronomy 8.3, which actually says this, God humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And what a great verse. And the Lord uses that in Matthew 4 when he's being tempted, right? This is, this is such a great reminder for us to see that there are physical things that are important. But during the craziness of Christmas and all the physical things that can take place, certainly we don't want those things to eclipse the spiritual focus that God would have for us. And most of us have experienced a good holiday meal, right? You know, you, you um, gather around, it's good food, and you, you come hungry, and you eat, and it's satisfying. And I'm not talking about, you know, the gluttonous Thanksgiving feast. I'm talking about just a good holiday meal where you eat, and, and it's just so satisfying. And this is such a, a good illustration of what the, the Lord is talking about, because this is true spiritually after working diligently on a task for the sake of ministry. There's a sense of fulfillment. There's a sense of accomplishment. There's, there's a sense of joy. And in many instances, this can last for days and weeks and months and the years ahead while a physical meal just comes and goes. And to some degree, that's what just took place as we prepared this facility to have this, this worship. How sweet, how sweet it was for us just to know that we're doing this for the kingdom, that we're doing this for Christ. It's fulfilling. fulfilling. There's, there's joy that comes with it. So to make sure that the disciples who were already prone to distraction didn't miss the point, the Lord continues using another physical illustration to convey a profound, a profound spiritual lesson. Verse 35 says this, Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one reaps, one sows, and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. And what a glorious spiritual 
lesson the Lord is providing for us. Farming and crops were common in the day of the disciples. Everyone grew their own food. And we all know that farmers traditionally plant crops in the spring and then the summer sunshine helps them grow and they're watered and then the harvest time comes in the fall. And Jesus simply asked them an ordinary question. Do you not say? It's, it's, it's just referencing normal everyday knowledge to them because he knew that they had a basic agricultural understanding. And normally a waiting period exists between planting and harvesting. But Christ affirmed that his gospel fields, guess what? His gospel fields are ripe and they're ready now. This word could also be translated ripe or gleaming. It, it, one commentator said that it was fitting that the words translated white because the, the, the white Samaritan clothing would have been held in contrast coming across the, the green fields um, at, at that time of the year with the vegetation that would have gave an appearance. Remember, she had just witnessed to the Samaritans and they're coming out and he's having the conversation with them. So they would have been able to see this contrast. Regardless, one thing is certain. The Lord could see their hearts and as we will see, they were ripe for salvation. And Jesus' point is that there's no need to wait. There's no need to wait for the spiritual harvest. I was raised in the leading corn-producing county in the state of Illinois. I had that blessing, okay? A lot of cornfields, very flat. Leading corn-producing county in a state that's one of the leading corn-producing states. All right? And so every fall, picking corn was a big deal. It turned into a race. And once the corn was mature, mature and ready to get picked, they, they, they raced to pick, the, pick it before the first snowfall hit. Because once snow comes, most farming equipment gets stuck and the freezing moisture of the snow can actually damage and spoil the corn. And these big agricultural, agricultural farms, they use um, these big fancy machines called combines to pick all the corn. And there's a story of a struggling farmer who purchased one of these very expensive and efficient machines that can cost upwards of close to $200,000 to purchase one in an effort to save his farm and business. And he thought that because he had a newer, more efficient machine, that he could go ahead and wait to pick his corn. And what happened was they were hit with some heavy rain showers, and then something else happened. It got colder. And they were hit with snow. And so the man was out there trying to pick his corn and his brand new combine got stuck. Colder weather moved in and it actually froze into the ground. And so the farmer was desperate and he went home and he got a chain and he got his tractor that he could now drive on the frozen ground and he wrapped the chain around the combine in an attempt to pull it out. You know what happened? He pulled it into pieces. The frozen ground was reluctant to release the combine, and he pulled it into pieces. And this is a true story. The man went back to his house. 
He retrieved his shotgun. He came back out to the field and he shot himself. He killed himself. That's tragic, isn't it? That is a tragic story. But it was self-inflicted. Why? He chose to wait. Why am I telling you this? Because we want to see this as an illustration. He chose to wait. And the Lord Jesus Christ wants us to see that the harvest is now. And there's no need to wait. Unbelieving family, friends, and co-workers fill the fields of Orange County. They fill the fields and they're waiting. They're waiting for us. They're waiting for the church. They're waiting for the ecclesia. They're waiting for the called out ones to respond in faithfulness and to share the gospel with them. Because Christ has said, it's ready. And let me just share this. Not all fields are created equally for the harvest. They're not. And God in his goodness has allowed our church to be it to exist in the center of a great field. You can live in Bodunk, Idaho, or Neverland, Mississippi, with a handful of people and have no access, and the harvest isn't going to produce very much. But we have been blessed. We have been blessed. And it's not about our church getting longer, larger. And it's not about um, a special plan that the pastor has or some other pseudo-incentive. The instructing Savior shares why in verse 36. It's about eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. And what a beautiful picture of Christian evangelism and discipleship. One person may plant, another may fertilize, another may come along and water, And it all takes place as we trust the only one who can make the crops grow. And God used the Apostle Paul to record this with great clarity in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. And Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the increase. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he plants, now he who plants and he who waters are one. We're, we're, we're in this together. And each will receive his own reward to his own labor, for we are God's fellow workers. What a beautiful passage. And this definitely makes me think of this new church building. That each week there are four churches that meet here, that are, are striving to honor Christ and are striving to reach the lost. And all God wants for us is to do our part. And as disciples, we can get easily distracted. Just like they did. And this world is known for offering a host of distractions, isn't it? Loaded with them. All these things. I mean, we could just think about distractions this morning. Do I have oh, my clothes ready? Is my, my shirt ironed? Um, are these pants wrinkled? <laughs> Did the kids eat? Is there gas in the car? Is it hot or cold? Is this sweater going to be warm enough? 
Mom, can I wear this? Did you brush your teeth? Do I need a coat? Is there something I'm forgetting? What time is it? Where's my purse? Where's my wallet? Where are the car keys? Remember your Bible. Make sure we remember to get milk after church. How many minutes before we leave? Are we going to be late again? Some of you probably think that I was in your house this morning. (laughs) I was just in my own. (laughs) I was just in my own. And it's just the reality that there are spiritual distractions every day. But if we're spirit-led and trusting the Lord for His help, then we'll have His advocacy. And the instructing Savior wants to help us. And so what lessons can we learn from the distracted disciples? I want to give you three questions. Those who are taking notes for application. Three questions for application and reflection. How does God want me to prepare spiritually for a Christmas harvest? First, seek Spirit-led opportunities. Be praying. God will guide you. If, if your heart is burdened to pray for somebody, to share the gospel with, there's a reason for that. There is a reason. Pray for those opportunities to evangelize. And if you're like me and you come from a big family, big family can prevent big challenges. Narrow your focus. Try to focus on one person. Cast a line, not a net. Okay? Don't, don't, don't feel like you're going to have to catch, you're going you know, you're gonna, to you're gonna start a, a revival with the whole family. Okay? Be realistic and, and, and seek the opportunities that you have and, and prayerfully consider who is that one person that I am just really going to go after and I'm really going to spend time with them this Christmas season. Question number two, what distractions am I vulnerable to during the, the Christmas holiday? What worldly things attempt to eclipse my spiritual priorities? Everything with the holiday rush, right? Get work done. Get shopping done. Get meals planned. Get travel plans set. And we're sprinting. Sprinting from place to place. Position yourself so that you're not sprinting. Build some buffers into your schedule. Build, Build room for margin. Give yourself that time. Don't allow the, the worldly distractions to consume you. Question number three, who will I ask to hold me accountable to evangelize the lost in my family? Care groups comes to mind immediately, right? Who am I going to team up with in my care group and, and make a plan to talk about the lessons that you learned after Christmas and, and, and to pray with for, for gospel progress with your family? And if you're not in a life group, then you get to answer that question. Why, 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 am, not, why am I not in a life group or a care group? Sorry, we, we had discipleship groups called life groups. But care groups, why am, I, why am I not in a care group? And there may be legitimate reasons. You work second shift or um, because of where you're at or uh, it, 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 it's not going to happen. But then who does God want, to, want you to ask to hold you accountable? Who does God want you to seek to hold you accountable for sharing the gospel with lost family and friends. Well, our time is quickly disappearing and our passage um, does offer one more interaction and that's with the skeptical Samaritans. And we'll just take an ever so brief look. The Samaritans would have been skeptical and reluctant to believe this woman, especially considering her reputation 
But it's powerful to see how the Lord used this woman as his messenger. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And look at the incredible fruit that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ sharing, sharing who he is with her at the well. His willingness to reach out. Verse 39, many of the Samaritans believed in him. Many. And this was through the simple testimony of a woman who was just telling them about Jesus. Verse 41 says, many more believed because of his word. And the text doesn't say how many, many is, but we can almost picture that there was a little revival taking place in Sakar, this little Samaritan village. And look at verse 40. These hated, hostile, considered to be half-breed Samaritans were asking Jesus to stay with them. And that is just unheard of. No self-respecting Samaritan would allow a Jew to come near him, much less stay and hang out. And they don't just ask him to stay for one day. They, he stays for two days with them. And I didn't share this earlier, but religious Jews coming from Jerusalem would have most likely um, taken a, the long route to, to go to Galilee on the east side of the Jordan. They would have gone f- 50 miles out of their way so they, that they didn't have to even step on Samaritan soil and possibly become defiled. These Samaritans are coming to the knowledge of who Jesus is and what living water is, which I'm sure the woman shared with them as well. It's incredible. And equally shocking is that the instructing Savior accepts and stays with them not one, but two days. What powerful results. And this is truly an inspiration and an awesome ending to our study. And verse 42 bears the theme of the entire passage. The Samaritans acknowledge and understand that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Supernatural. Miraculous. And these are the hated Samaritans affirming this truth. So what might the instructing Savior have us take away from this final interaction? I don't know. Maybe we could consider evangelizing our enemies. Maybe the people we don't like or those who take us out of our comfort zone or maybe those that we could potentially even detest. Jesus considered it important. In fact, it's more than important. Jesus considered it his food. Not just evangelizing, but evangelizing particular people, those who are enemies and despised. And he was in a unique situation, right? Because everyone despised. Everyone despised him. And so the question is, who are the enemies in your life? Some of you might say, oh, Pastor John, I don't have enemies. I mean, I I pretty much get along with everybody. For those of you in that camp that is so, so sweet. 
so sweet. But enemies come in many forms, and our hearts are so deceptive. What about family feuds, which you may or may not be directly involved in? What about people whose personality just rubs you the wrong way? What about people who are living immoral lives that you don't agree with? What about friends who may have hurt you or offended you or talked behind your back? What about those neighbors who are noisy or neighbors who kind of annoy you so you keep your distance from them? Then there are those people who we don't align with politically. There are those who advocate abortion. There are those who are racist and sexist and prejudiced, angry atheists, evolutionists, gay rights activists, gay marriage advocates, feminists, and on and on the list can go. That's the short list. Praise God for the instructing Savior. May we continue to look to Christ for His instruction and follow His example of love, evangelism, and devotion to the Heavenly Father. I trust the instructing Savior's interactions encourage you today. And may we all have, may we all have, not dream of, a white Christmas. Please join me as I pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessing of your word and the interactions and the clear instruction and example that Christ provides for us. And we do want Christmas to be what you would have it be for us. We do want it to be a gleaming harvest. We want to embrace the spiritual reality of what the holiday brings. Help us, Father, to not be sidetracked by so many of the things that this world would throw at us and help us to see people as souls. And there's only two types of souls in this world, souls that have been made right with you and souls that are still at enmity, souls that are still resistant, souls that have no desire to pursue you. They're lifeless. They're dead. And you want us to be used to reach them. And so I pray for every person in this room that you would grant us gospel opportunities for this Christmas and that we would faithfully embrace them, that we would be prepared. And we pray for those in our families that don't know you, that aren't at a church anywhere on Sunday today because they reject you. And their lives are hard and we hurt for them. And we ask you, Father, that you would break through in your divine providence, that you would be drawing all of them to yourself. I pray that you would draw all of them in our families to yourself. Our friends, our co-workers, everyone, would you do this work? Put yourself on display. Allow sower and reaper to rejoice together as we praise you for the increase that only you can give. And Father, now as we turn our hearts towards celebrating communion, 
We ask that you would help us just to reflect, to take a moment, just to consider how we've fallen short. And we are all sinners. And Lord, we ask that you would allow us to see if there's any unrepentant sin in our life or if there's any broken relationship that we have with someone in the church that would have us pass up communion this day. We know that you want us to have fellowship and you want us to have unity with you and with others. And so, Lord, we just thank you for this time to celebrate it. It's so fitting for this time of year. And we look forward to seeing how you bless your table. In Jesus' name, amen.